Hey, if you missed it, we announced the dates for the rest of the films in our Music Box series on HBO. It's a Ringer film special. You might have seen the Woodstock 99 doc that we did, uh, a little sneak preview of the series back this summer. The other five are coming starting on November 18th on HBO and HBO Max. Jagged, it's about Alanis Morissette. After that, DMX, Kenny G, Saturday Night Fever, the guy who made it, Robert Stigwood. And last but not least, Juice World. Five weeks in a row. I put the posters on my Instagram, if you didn't see that. Uh, really excited for this series. November 18th, mark it down in your calendar. HBO, HBO Max, Music Box, coming back. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Monopoly Go. It's halftime and the scoreboard's not looking good. You're not sure you can pull out a win? That's when you say to yourself, it's time to get back in the game. Pull off some bank heists and take as much of my friend's money as I possibly can. That's right. The hit mobile game, Monopoly Go. Let you compete with your friends to be the biggest tycoon ever. I might do this with my high school friends. We used to play Monopoly all the time. It's the Monopoly you love, but on your phone anytime with tons of new twists, including leaderboards to compare your progress. There's so much to do. Play on countless dynamic Monopoly boards. Make your friends bankrupt by smashing their landmarks with a wrecking ball. Charge other players rent for your iconic properties. Maybe you'll even play against me. I'm great at Monopoly. You could even work with your friends to crack open community chests and in tournaments to get extra rewards. Get back out there. Put on your game face. Download Monopoly Go. Now free on the App Store or Google Play. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook and the Ringer Podcast Network. If you missed part one of this two-part extravaganza, I did some takes at the top, did million-dollar picks with Peter Schrager, and talked to Rembert Brown about the Braves winning the World Series. This is part two, the one, the only, Tom Hanks. First, Pro Jam. <laughs> All right, Tom Hanks is here. He's been in my life for a long time. I went way back in the Bosom Buddies days. I had season tickets for everything you've done for the last 40 <laughs> plus years. Um, it, I don't even know where to start. By the way, we give those away, season tickets. <laughs> Not like you paid money for them, they're free. That's true. They're available um, here at the radio station at, and at uh, Happy Donuts down by uh, <laughs> on Lancashire. When I was uh, writing for ESPN, I got a mailbag question like 10 years ago from a reader who said, if you ask a thousand people to list their top three favorite Tom Hanks movies mm. and you took Gump off the table, you're like, you can't vote for Gump, but you be, give your next three, that all the responses would be different for all the people. And I actually did a test with 30 people I knew and 26 of them had completely different lists. Hey, I hey, that, hey, <laughs> I win, I win. <laughs> what? So what are your three? You have to pick three. What oh. are your three? No, well, you got to do it. 
No, I would. No, I'd do it. But what I would, I would not do the, I would not do it according to the way the movies came out. I would do it by way of the, the personal experience that I had when I was doing it. Okay, do that. Uh, Let's hear it. Which is very different. Um, all right. Um, you got uh, three. I can have three, you say? Three. So so um, you can do degree of difficulty. You can do what it meant the most to you uh, as you were filming it. Whatever it, category you want. Number one, uh, I would probably say number one would be League of Their Own because all I did all summer was play baseball. I shagged flies. I ate turkey dogs. I took infield with Robin Knight and a ton of other people. I played baseball all summer long in Evansville, Indiana, and uh, in Wrigley Field. You know, there was a day of doing that. And I had all my kids with me. I had all my family with me. It was a big-ass summer uh, in the Midwest. We lived in a house in the middle of cornfields. We went to um, Burger King at, at, at night and Dairy Queen in the afternoon. We got our, our food at, at Hooks and our drugs at Schnooks, and, and uh, it was a great summer. And my entire family still speaks about it. Hmm. Uh, then I would say, uh, probably, I would say Castaway because it was just, uh, we had just bold adventures when we were making that movie. I mean, we were out in the middle of the ocean, just, you know, uh, trying to grab shots. And we were off uh, uh, in Fiji on two different occasions. And I had, again, had the whole family with me. There was nothing but adventures every single day, every single night. Understand on, on Castaway. And these are the creature comforts. There are, every movie has them. But these were extraordinary. Because let me tell you, Bill, I don't know how you would get to that, oh, that hideous little box of a studio in, what, in Camden, Connecticut. Where, was, where were those ESPN studios? Where were uh, they? Bristol. Yeah. Bristol, Bristol, Connecticut. I don't know how you got to work every morning to that. <laughs> but here's how I got to work every day on Castaway. The sun was not yet up in the east. And I would get up wearing nothing but a Speedo and a T-shirt. And I'd make myself a cup of coffee. The house would be quiet. Everybody would be in bed. Stars were out. Moon was out. The sky wasn't even yet to turn blue in the east. And I would make a cup of coffee. Then I would stroll down um, the road, the gravel road, to where the pier was. And then I would swim out to the special um, fishing boat. Uh, a marlin boat that had these two huge, uh, massive outboard motors on the back of it and a massive fly bridge. And I would swim out to the boat, get on with the pilot and the mate and uh, one of the guys from the crew. And we would head out. And in for 50 minutes, the sun would be rising behind us on the open sea. And we would be heading towards the island of uh, uh, Monoriki, which is where we shot. And by the time we got to the island, the sun was up. The support boats were there with the rest of the crew. Some of them were already on land. And the boat would stop. And I would fly, come down from the flybridge because you couldn't sit in the boat itself because the, the seas were so heavy. So you really had to stand the entire way. Mm. And I would swim ashore. And then we'd, we'd get dressed and do the, do the movie and, you know, Wilson and, you know, all that stuff that was going on. And then at the end of the day, we had to stop uh, about an hour before sunset because there was no power on the island. So we shot during daylight hours. And with an hour left, kind of said, all right, that's it. And the crew had to get back on their boats. And I would swim out to my Marlin boat. And this time the sun is setting behind me. And, this, and this, the sky to the east is getting darker and darker and darker. And we would just head for the horizon stars 
for 50 minutes, me standing on the, uh, the flybridge, pondering all that we had shot and what we still had to do. Then we get to the island where we were staying, me and the family, and I would swim ashore, pull myself up by the pier, walk down the gravel driveway to our house, uh, to a lovely dinner outside. And my, my, I had, uh, I had two of my, uh, my boys were young and they had nothing but adventures and my wife and uh, my in-laws, they were all there. And that's how we made the movie for the, for not the entire film, but for, I'm going to put together, say, two and a half months of what that shooting was. That, that, wow. was, that's, that was a vacation. Uh, and the last film I would say that was magical for me was um, uh, a movie called Cloud Atlas that I made with the Wachowskis and Tom Titber. We shot it on a hope and a dream and nothing but a, a circle of love in Berlin and Mallorca and Dresden. And uh, I want to say, do we go to Dusseldorf? Did we go to Frankfurt somewhere? We were, so we were bombing all over Germany. And that was the first time I had ever shot extensively in Germany. And I was surrounded by history and that, but the work itself was we were part of this big, massive ensemble of fantastic people who are just trying to do the hardest, best work on this, I mean, deep throw. I mean, I always say, as Kenny Stable said, throw deep, baby. We, that whole movie was such a deep throw um, that uh, making, it, uh, making it was magical. And, I, and again, I had a lot of my family come over, and we all saw Berlin and East, uh, former East Germany, made a lot of, a lot of cool friends uh, on the German crew over there. And that would be my big three. That's a good one. That was a great list. I see. I wouldn't have expected that three. I want to talk about Castaway, my favorite Tom Hanks movie. I did a, we do this rewatchables movie podcast. I hosted that one by myself because I felt like I had to because Chuck was on the island for over an hour. <laughs> so I, I had no co-host. I just did the yeah, whole yeah. thing by oh, myself. That's, uh, all right. That's good. It seemed like an intensely personal movie for you. And, you know, you had to put on weight what you gain yeah. like 50 pounds and then you uh, had you to know, take uh, yeah, six months yeah. off and then lose a bunch of weight and then start Actually, filming we, it again. We, we took a, we took a whole year off. We worked on that. Um, Bill Broyles and myself worked on that movie for four years, just trying to figure out the three acts. Yeah. And we really, we really only had an act and a half. It came about because I read an article about FedEx. Um, and I did not realize the common sense of, uh, business model that FedEx had. And when I read that um, planes, huge planes, not 747s, but like DC-10s, you know, filled with nothing but packages, left Los Angeles to fly to Australia every single night at two o'clock in the morning, every single night. So that's a crew of uh, probably six for, you know, because you got to switch pilots on the way over. And so six people and nothing but packages flew across the Pacific every single day, every single night, one going and one coming. So actually there's two planes. And I thought, oof, what happens if one of those goes down? And from that came, came the movie. Bill Broyles and I were working on a couple. Of, I, I, I knew Bill because he, he had written uh, uh, Apollo 13 and we lived close to each other. And I was a big fan because he had, you know, he had started Texas Monthly and he'd been the Newsweek editor for a while. And he was one of the forces behind China Beach, the TV show. Hmm. So we were trying to work out something else. And one day he said to me, what else do you have? Yeah, I mean, what, what else are you thinking about? And I told him this story about FedEx guys. And I just thought, I, I think it would be amazing to make a movie about a guy um, who truly is stranded <laughs> for four years. Um and so that's I, the, so that's the act you have. You have one and a half acts, but you know you have at least that 
I knew he what land, I, I, we we worked on how it, how he got there, and then we worked. And and Bill said, "Well, you know, the the fact is, just finding the finding food, shelter, water, and fire. Well, that would that would be dramatic structure unto itself. I mean, that would be there'd be real drama and all those things." And I said, "Yeah, exactly." Uh, so we worked on it for four years, and then we talked to Bob Zemeckis uh, briefly. And he said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. You got to hide, you know, alone on an island. That's going to be tough. And then how does it get off? And we said, well, we had ideas like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit uh, edition shows up with models, you know, in an abandoned, you know, at a desert island. We thought that would be it. We <laughs> thought maybe we never came to pirates or anything like that. We never had bad guys, but we thought maybe, you know, some sort of like, lifestyles of the rich and family. You could own your own magical island. You know, we thought maybe those guys would show up. Bob never bought any of that. And he went away for two years. <laughs> then he came back. He came back and what did he say? Yeah. Hey, you're still working on that. Uh, we called it Chuck of the Jungle for the money. You're still working on that thing, Chuck of the Jungle? And I said, well, yeah, we are. And we, we still don't. And he said, well, you know what you need there? And then he mapped out um, the theme of the rest of Act Two and all of Act Three. And once that happened, then it was just uh, we had to figure out a way in order to make it, because with that four year gap in the middle, yeah. that there's no way you could do a special effects version of that. And I was dead set against the idea of putting on a fake beard in the South Pacific and swimming in the ocean because they're impossible to keep on and they're very uncomfortable. And it would take hours every day to put it on and take it off. So there was no way to shoot it. And Bob said well, that. Let, well, let's be yeah. honest, though. You have a ton of juice at this point. You have the, you're probably one of the few actors who has the ability to convince a studio to make a movie that you're going to shut down production for a year oh, and then you, go back. You'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, you, I would say you'd yes. think so. That would, be, that would be the assumption, wouldn't it? Yeah. You'd think, oh, yeah, you get to do it. At, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, still, it's still just money. Yeah. And it's still just, you know, hey, not all your movies are hits. You know, there's that. And there's like, well, we don't we don't we don't have it in our you know, we have a slate of films. We don't have room for anything like this. And they said, well, you know, Bob, Bob, Bob Zemeckis, Bob. Hey, Gump. Hey, you know, we got a track record. And they go, yeah, yeah, I don't know. This is an expensive movie. And Bob floated to them the, the idea of, he says, well, you know, if we had any, you know, we had any guts, here's how we'd make this movie. I said, mm. what? Well, we'd make the fat part and then take a year off and you lose all the weight. And we'd come back and shoot the second half, the skinny part, with a year in between. And that's never been done at this never, point. No, no. I mean, no, there's, there's movies that are like, you know, there's a number of films. Uh, like the Linklater stuff where they yeah, come back, that, but not, they, they not do like that. this. No, not in, not in, uh, not 12 years later. The, because here's what had to happen. You know, a production office stay has to stay open. Cash flow has to be maintained. The crew has to be, be held. The only, the only advantage it had was only one, well, really only one actor, I guess. Although, there, you know, yeah. there was Helen Hunt and uh, Nick Searcy and a few others. But Bob, Bob struck a deal with uh, 20th Century Fox. He said, we'll make the first half of this movie. And in the year between, I'll make another movie for you guys. We'll oh, so you... one for them, one for you. Yeah, there was, uh, he made, uh, with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, he made What Lies Beneath in Good the line. year off that I had where I was off trying to get uh, 
trying to lose the weight and grow the beard and all that stuff. So while he was doing that, um, I was also working on putting together Band of Brothers. This was like 1999, going into 2000. And when I was off doing a research trip, starving and getting skinny with big hair and all that kind of stuff, I fell in a hole in Berkter's garden and separated my shoulder, dislocated my shoulder, uh. and had to recover from that for six weeks. And that, that made me lose some of my physical regimen. But I was still able to show up very hairy and very skinny. And we went right back to the same island where we had left um, a year before and started shooting. And we did, you know, we were figuring out. And in the meantime, in the year between, Bob put together the first half of the movie and we watched it in real time. And then he said, "Okay, now that's what we have. What are we going to do? And we... The, the, the permutations that the screenplay had gone through in that first half, for example, you know, Chuck, Chuck Nolan talked to himself a lot. He was, you know, explaining, you know, because you want everybody who reads the script to understand what he's thinking. And, and Bob was always saying, well, that ain't cinema. That's, you know, that's dialogue. And I said, once we got to the island and we were, we literally shot, came to the, I swear to God, the first shot of Chuck on the island when he was fat. I said, Bob, I don't know why I'm talking here. Why, who am I? He said, I don't think I should talk unless I think somebody is here. Yeah. Or there's a, you know, there's, there's one moment where I sort of say to the, to the pilot who died that I buried, I kind of say, well, that's it. And that's it. And so Bob said, yeah, let's do it. You know, so no dialogue unless who's there. Hey, Save me, or Wilson, you know, that stuff was there. Um, and uh, it really did impact the second half of everything we did because it kind of like jump-started it. And uh, we ended up dreaming bigger and getting all sorts of stuff that wasn't, in the, wasn't on the pages when we returned. Then in the, uh, in the was it the first half or the, no, in the second half when I was, I can't remember. I can't remember if I if I made fire in the first half of the second. No, it was half. the first half. I'm it here. I'm here. Half, I remember everything. Yeah, yeah. it's when the I, first half. When I when I made fire in the first half, I was I had a slight cut, a blister on my knee, and when I was kneeling in the sand, a piece of organic material got under my skin and gave me a staph infection. Oh. Infection that put me in the hospital uh, for three days. And kept me uh, uh, away from work for three weeks. So we lost three weeks. But Bob loved it because we were able to rewrite some pages and, and rebuild a bunch of the set and stuff like that. So that was, that was just one huge, big, massive physiological adventure every step of the way. At the same time, we were really trying to, we were really trying to crack uh, a different sort of emotive plane of, well, what does all this mean? What does it mean when... You know, everybody thinks you're dead. The logic of why he's gone, that was, that was the only thing I cared about. I mm. said, once, once we can understand why he's on this island, and that's where Bob came in with how graphic the crash was and the death of the pilot and uh, the, the desperate uh, need for fire, water, shelter, uh, food, and then last of all things, company, somebody to talk to. Uh, Bob, Bob, Bob came and said, you know, because we even just said, oh, I, I just absentmindedly drew a, drew a face on a volleyball and called it Wilson. And Bob said, nah, you can't not. It, it's, it, it, you can't just decide that. It's got to like be a surprise. I, I, think, I, think, I think he should be, 
I think he should be uh, an offspring of Chuck's own blood. And I said, well, let, how could we, well, let's figure out a way for me to get cut. Yeah. And I get so mad, I pick up the volleyball and throw it. And then inadvertently is this mark that looks like a face that, I, anyway, so the rest, you know what the rest of the movie is. So uh, that's well, a know, thing. I can, I can talk to the cows come home about. And then we came up with this amazing moment, <laughs> you know, the first scene with Helen Hunt and we had a Luma Craig. We, I could go on and on. There's interesting lessons about that, though. It, it took so many years to innovate and add yeah. to stuff. I think that's one of the reasons it's a special movie. And I remember I saw it in the theater. I really liked it. I didn't totally understand the ending and it didn't work for me. And the reason I didn't understand it was I literally didn't understand it. And then when I saw it again, when it made the cable rounds, I, it was one of those, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> he turns around and Bettina, like he's turning back, yeah. like, Cause I'm just, he's on the road, he's looking around, but you realize right. the way it's shot, he turns, he turns, he turns, and then he turns to the place and he's turning back to where his car was, had just come from. Uh, it, it's a bit, lot uh, yeah. when you're in the theater, you know, especially if yeah. you've had some popcorn and some M&Ms and some soda, yeah, maybe you're not following of, it yeah. entirely. A lot of times, this is the thing that comes around because you can sort, I mean, that one might've been one of the early films where you could actually see it anytime you wanted to, because, yep. you know, um, you didn't have to wait for it to play on HBO or something like that. I think you could actually pull it up or, you know, certainly have the DVD. You could rent it from Blockbuster anytime you wanted to. But Bob was that that was that was not the first movie, but that was the one where all three of us, everybody who was working on Bob, myself and Bill. That was when we said there's no there's no hurrying this process. Yeah. We just have to figure out what we want to say and then take the time in order to say it. As opposed to, hey guys, come on, suns go down. You gotta shoot something, you know. Say something funny here and get us out of the seat. Look, we'll cut here, we'll cut here, we'll go boom, boom, boom. Bob doesn't Bob doesn't shoot that way. Bob Bob says, Well, hmm, I don't know. Well, what do you think we should do here? And this is when we're on an island. Mm. I weigh 140 pounds and I have lice crawling around. In my is that head. how much you weighed? No, no. I got down to. Um, it had to be like 160, right? No, no. I wanted to. I'm six feet tall and I wanted to get down to 159. I didn't. I got down to about 171, I think, uh, because I lost those six weeks. I lost yeah. those six weeks. I couldn't do my workout. For six weeks. But uh, by that time, CGI came in and they were able to do a little bit of body sculpting. But I was I was I was very skinny. I was very skinny and very hungry. I think one of the reasons that movie's always on. And my theory with this stuff is these movies are always on because the channels they know and the streamers, they're basically they're going for clicks, right? They're going for eyeballs. And if somebody is repeatedly watching the same movie and Castaway is one of those, it's had this 21 year shelf life. I think one of the reasons is it's a weirdly relaxing movie. Like there's a vibe, you're mm. on an island, it's quiet. Mm -hmm. There's no musical score for like no over music. an hour. Yeah, yeah. And you can just yeah. kind of have it on as you're doing other things. Meanwhile, there's this horrible plane crash in it. You know, and it's, it's kind like, of, oh, Castaway's it, on, great. It's kind of like a cross between this old house and Bob. Who's the, who's the guy that painted the pictures, you know? Uh, the sound of the guy who painted <laughs> oh, yeah. the pictures. Yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. Guy, guy with the big hair. It's, right. They just made a documentary about him. Yeah, let's let's add a little tree here. <laughs> but it's it, it has that kind of like tactile feel. Bob to Ross, golf, yeah. Bob Ross, a golf yeah. in the background kind of sound. Oh, oh, that's a lovely layup there on seventeen. That's I think going to it's kind of crazy now when you look back. 
like it did it didn't do as well as the Oscars as I think people thought. And I and some of that was back it was you were in that weird Michael Jordan was in that mode too when he lost to Carl Malone, he lost the MVP that year because everyone was kind of his excellence has been established. People get bored after a while. You had just made all of these great movies in a row. And at some point it starts bouncing off people. It doesn't seem well, real yeah, anymore. But it's, you know, it's also, there's the whole thing is a sweepstakes, you know, every year there's this kind of like big ass playoff that goes on. And yeah, you know, a lot, a lot of times you know, the first seed is eliminated, you know, and the, 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 <laughs> The, the team that only won 88 games for the year actually starts playing for the World Series. You know, it's, it's right. like, and there's, there's no reason to get worked up about it because at the end of the day, you know, you get invited to the pancake breakfast, you get a little free stuff and uh, you get to hobnob with all the other famous people in the famous people's club. It's, it's not a, it's yeah. not bad. It's always fun. And then I got to tell you, most people, uh, I, I, con- I am constantly congratulated for winning best actor for Castaway. Really? So people oh, can't yeah. even keep track of it. They, they don't know. They, <laughs> they don't. just know they, you they, would too. They know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just, I just love the Philadelphian castaway. I just loved how you won. You know, it's like, okay, well, thank you very much. And we move on from there. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside. LDA, 21 and up. So your career, and I, again, I was there from the beginning, Uncle Ned. Uh, How old are you? How old are I'm, you? I'm, I just turned 52. Oh, okay. So, all right. So, so I, yeah. I literally, were... I watched Bosom Buddies. And then when you, when you crossed over as Uncle Ned on Family Ties, it was like, it was kind of a big moment. But TV, there was way more people watching TV back. I mean, 30 million people would watch some of those shows. Well, that's true. I mean, we were, we were dead last and Bosom Buddies in our time slot. And number one was, uh, Tom Selleck on CBS in uh, Magnum PI, right. and the difference the difference between them uh, was like twenty eight million people watched uh, Magnum PI, and fourteen million people watched Bosom Buddies. Well, if there was a TV show that got fourteen million people, now, you'd be number one. Oh, it'd be huge. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I, Michael Keaton was on here a few weeks ago, and we were talking about that era of that early mid eighties era. Where God, all oh, of you guys yeah. are, all of you guys are coming up at the same time, and Seinfeld's coming up, and Leno and Letterman is establishing himself. Keaton's Saturday. doing working stiffs. He's doing Murphy report yeah. to Murphy. He ends up doing uh, stuff with Ron and Brian. He's on uh, oh, night shift. Oh, night shift. Yeah, he started. Yeah, he and I, he and I were for a while. We were like the. We almost ran into each other on every audition. You know, we were we were the two we were, you know, there was a number of us that were just like, oh, here's the here's the relatively funny, goofy guys that are, you know, I've got some stuff under their belt and let's let's think about them for these next things. Yeah, like and, you easily could have been in Night Shift. He probably could have been in Bachelor uh, Party. Like you could have no, swapped like 10 of those movies. Oh, well, yeah, we could have gone back and forth. Uh, couple of times and, and uh every time i'd go and see keaton in a movie i said oh man hey 
I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't have done that. It's good. I wanted it, but I, I wouldn't have been as good as you. Well, then you had, you had 1984, you, you have Splash and Bachelor Party the same year. And it's like, it was incredible yeah. vindication for all the Tom Hanks fans. Cause they were <laughs> okay. like, Tom Hanks, the movie star now. I'm like, yeah, I told you. I've uh, telling you guys about this Tom Hanks guy for years. Oh, man, it finally oh, happened. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. The very, the very first, um, review I read of, you know, this is a big deal, man. I've gone from, you know, worrying about, you know, how I'm going to keep the Pontiac 2000 paid for, you know, I'm, well, your show got yeah. canceled, right? You didn't, yeah, somebody's I mean, was gone. I, 83. Yeah, I was gone. I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, I was, I wait, I was waiting for the phone to ring. And then, uh, this, this movie comes along and Opie Cunningham is directing it. Nobody wants to make <laughs> it. And it's for old Disney, you know, Disney doesn't really have any money. And, we sort of cobbled together this thing. I went, when I went to read, I had never met Ron. Uh, I only knew of him. You know, he wasn't on, he wasn't at Paramount Studios when we did Bosom Buddies. He was already, he had already left uh, Happy Days and was already directing movies. And so, uh, but he and Brian Grazer were sort of, uh, we were peers. They were older than me, but it was like, you know, everybody grew up with Ron, but he was a cool cat. He was just saying, yeah, hey man, it's a wacky business. Wowie zowie. Um, and I thought I was reading for the funny brother. And then uh, he, I got a call from him and he said, uh, listen, um, we want you, we want you for the movie, but we want you for the, the guy. I said, Oh, 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 Landy. Oh, wow. And he says, so you got that part, but I want you to come in cause I need you to read with this actress that I really want. And the studio's giving me some flack, uh, Daryl Hannah. So I want you to come in and do a screen test. And I didn't even know what a screen test was, really. I mean, I'd done some video stuff. And it was going to be a big deal. And I said, oh, great, fine. Yes, can, can I ask one question? He says, yeah. Is there a way I can, I'm going to lose this job because of this screen test? I said, no, no, no. We're not, we're not going to see the back of your head. So, um, yeah, that, that came along. And uh, so we made the movie. And it was, I've got to say, it was damn good. Now, understand, this is really still old old show business, the type that has gone with the wind now. Uh, home video was crappy VHSs that were just beginning to show up. VHS machines still cost a family 1500 bucks. You know, there weren't, there weren't a lot of, uh, if you were able to rent a home video, you had to go like to Doug's uh, right. tape, tape, you know, shoppy uh, uh, OPP. So, um, so we, it was an old fashioned movie that had to make the money at the box office or wasn't going to do anything. And it ended up doing, it ended up being good enough. But the first, I came home really late one night from helping friends, uh, uh, build sets or something like that. And lo and behold, Los Angeles magazine was there, came out once a month. And I knew that it had a review of splash and it's, it's 11 or 30. I got, I got, uh, uh, one of my, two of my kids are sleeping and I think, uh, should I read this? Should I read, should I read this harbinger of the future? Should I read this omen that if it's good, it'll fill me with way too much overconfidence. And if it's bad, it will send me into a hopper of despair. Should I bother doing this right now? I said, yeah, I think I will. So, so this is like a it. real fork in the road moment for you. Oh, yeah. I, I actually thought I should probably just let this go until the morning or not read it at all and find out about it after the fact. But I said, ah, I, I don't think I'll be able to sleep wondering what's in it. So I opened it up to the uh, to the uh, uh, review pages. And 
from from the first paragraph, you you could tell this is a good review for this movie. Mm. Surprising, you know, Ron Howard, you know, uh, pulling up his his good references like American Graffiti and some of the TV movies he had did. So this is a guy who was really dedicated. Daryl Hannah, righteously luminous in every way, a woman of mystery. She had already done a couple of things. She had been in Blade Runner. So they're pulling out the really, really, really great um, references for them. John Candy, the genius of Second City TV. At last, he has found something that translates to this, and this must bode well for great comedy character actors like him, hearkening back to the, the days of entertainers like Jackie, Jackie Gleason, what had and on top of that, Eugene Levy. If there's an yeah. underappreciated genius in comedy from Second City, it is Gene Levy. Eugene Levy comes in, he doesn't do a lot, but what he does in that movie is just absolutely priceless. And I read the rest of the review and it mentioned the DP and it mentioned a couple of things and said it was coming at Disney from Disney for touchdown. It didn't mention my name. Oh, my God. It said nothing about me. My name did not appear in the review. So it's now, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning. And all I all I could remember is thinking of like, well, there's the there's the yin (laughs) to the yang of thinking the movie was pretty good. So is there a lesson to be learned here? What have you learned? Well, I think the, the lesson is that, uh, you know, it, this too shall pass, man. You got to let, you got to let, just as you got to let the bad stuff roll off, you got to let the good stuff roll off and go away as well. But then you eventually got good reviews and then you're, and then you're off. Yeah. The movie was very popular and people liked it. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And it was, uh, it was a lovely movie and a, about a million girls were named Madison, you know, after that, because Madison, mm-hmm. the, uh, that's who Daryl, the mermaid's name was Madison. And, uh, uh, yeah. And then after that, people said, Hey, you're in a movie. So we want you to be in a bunch of other movies too. And I just kept doing them. Started cranking you know? them out. Plus. Well, yeah. Hey, they offered me a job, man. Yeah. No, you can, uh, you don't say no to a job. A lot of them have held up. Um, at the same time, now you're you're popping on Letterman. You have chemistry with him. That's like the best late night show. And you start doing the SNL hosting and you become one of the best, ho- you know, recurring hosts that they've ever had. So you have, yeah. you have this weird relationship with two of the most important three late night properties, I would say the last 40 years. You're just kind of in the middle of it. But especially the SNL stuff, I think P- I think those guys would have had you on twice a year if you would have done it. Like, why did, do you feel oh, like I, you were the I, unofficial cast member? I'm glad I glad I got on by that just because I was, you know, some guy promoting some movie. Because if I had tried to audition for it, I would have choked. I never would have been able to be, been in the company. It's just I, <laughs> I, I, I was able to come in at their invitation as opposed to trying to get it. Uh, I could not quite fathom that that was that was part of it, because when we were doing Bosom Buddies, um, you know, Peter Scolari and I would would examine David Letterman at night. That's SCTV as well. And of course, SNL was still a uh, it had just come off that, you know, those other kind of the years of the Dick Ebersol years. So yeah. I didn't do it until it was kind of Lauren was back. And um, uh, I had uh, I had enough of a, uh, of a 
the, I had enough P&A money, prints and advertising money for it to warrant an invitation. So the first, yeah, you remember very well the first time you're on a show like SNL or the first time you come up out on David Letterman and, and you do a pretty good spot. I, look, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I, I, I didn't have an act. I was just trying to get by on, you know, charm and jo- yeah. joy, de, joy, de, joy de vivre. Uh, I was just trying to be as funny as the rest of the show. That's it. And if that meant being louder than anybody else, well, then you'd hear my voice instead of anybody else. And then you get big in like 1988. And at that point, you're in this, I think you're an A-list comic actor at that point, but big. Well, you say A minus. I no, I would actually say, I'd say, you know, the best guy on the B team. I, I think I was still junior varsity, you know, at that time, you know, the with uh, I would say the, everybody, the studios were all trying to come out with some less shinier version or less hip version of what Bill Murray was doing. You know, Bill and Danny Aykroyd and, you know, the Ghostbusters. Thing, actually, anything that that, that Bill Murray did. And Chevy. Was, Chevy was the other one. Yeah, was there was, there. they were such a level of commercial. Not only were they incredible, incredibly uh, popular. But they were also there was also some magic elixir that was being done by the likes of those guys. So if you were kind of goofy looking um, and could, you know, uh, had any sort of degree of charm, there was this whole kind of like lesser market for that stuff. I mean, if you go back, there's a ton of movies that are set in an arena that is about a young guy. Uh, trying to fall in love, have sex, and give it to the man at the same time, you know, go against the rules. He, yeah. he, he's unpredictable. There was an awful lot of guys like that. And uh, I was able to ride that for quite some time just because it was coin of the realm. They were, they were churning that stuff out. Yeah, Bachelor and, Party uh, is a funny one because it's like, what is this guy rebelling against? Yeah, couldn't yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's one guy at the bachelor party who was fighting to not get laid at the bachelor. Party. He's like, no, everybody else do it. I'm not going to. Everybody, and his, everybody. His wife's rich family. He's like, he just can't quite fit in with the rich family because he doesn't uh, no. play tennis as much. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, the the yeah, 80s were hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were. They were. I, in a lot of ways, that was the hipper stuff that was being offered uh, on TV. You know, you had, you did have, the, towards the mid '80s, or with the resurgence of SNL. And I'm look. You have to give David Letterman, not just not just props, but he 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 brought a. Um, we, I, I still miss him. I, I always think somehow, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to stay up late at night. I can watch Letterman. And he's not there. Um, he brought a that kind of like commentary wryness to who we are as a nation. Um, there was it wasn't just irony because irony becomes like the it becomes the haven for the uh, pontificating. He never pontificated, but he was just I mean, everything from the top 10 list to the home office you know, in Omaha to, uh, to his mom and pie. So Larry, Larry Bud Melman, and also the combination of him with Paul. Yeah. Um, there were, it was like, Oh, here's an hour. Here's an hour for us. The folks that have not been able to break into the mainstream yet. They gave us an hour at 1230 at night, uh, along with SNL that by that time was a, uh, you know, that was, that was the institution because that was the granddaddy of them all, but it still only came on once a week. The fact that Dave, Dave was on every night 
you know, right at the time when you could re- you could, you could set your recorders, you know, by yep. and, and have it the next morning. That that was a godsend. That was a comedic godsend because there was also there was also a theme that he was examining, and that was, um, uh, can you believe can you believe they're getting away with this? It was that you know it was that kind of thing. And you know, in all honesty, ESPN came along more or less at the same time. Yep. With uh, let's just go right to the highlights and come up with the you know funny uh, funny callbacks to everything. That's, uh, I mean, I still say something that um, Stuart, um, he passed Stuart away Scott. from uh, yep. Stuart Scott. He did this. <laughs> he did this thing where where he would show like an error of a guy under a pop fly and he would blow it. And uh, and it was it was worth a, definitely worth a highlight reel. But he always did this thing and it's hit deep in the center, deep in the short left. And I, 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 I got <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so I still do that every now and I can't, why, I still do it. Do <laughs> well, there was a lot less group thing back then too, where if you like something, unless your friends like also agreed that they liked it, you didn't really know who else liked it. So you would gravitate toward these things. Well, and yeah. ESPN's a good example. You'd be like, I love, I love that sports center anchor, but you had no idea yeah. if like a million other people loved them. You just knew Oh yeah, you didn't. As a matter of fact, when you go into the movies, you didn't really know if they were good or not till, till Monday. Because right. the, the people on Friday went to the movies and when they came to work on Monday or they came to school on Monday, they said it was either great and hilarious or not. And yeah. movies played for a lot longer in theaters. So, you you know, you actually did sort of like discover them. That began to that began to change by the time. What year? You can tell me what what year was big? Was that 86, 87? That big was 88. Yeah. Yeah. So it was still pre phones, but it was by that time it was huge. Uh, home video was already uh, going off and all the budgets were there. Um, anytime a movie came out, everybody who was in it went off on a kind of like a, I, I always called it the celebrity mule train. It was a month long dog and pony show where you went all over America first and then all over Europe later on. And everybody wanted to talk to you and everybody wanted to cover it and everybody wanted to, it was coin of the realm. I mean, it was like, it was like as, as much of a commodity to the economy as is, was crude oil or, you know, uh, a new and uh, the, the new model car that was suddenly selling a lot or not selling a lot. As a well, the, there was also it's funny. Keaton and I just talked about this because he had Batman in '89. Yeah, and it, there was that whole infrastructure that was moving in place, right? Where we had Blockbuster, where you could rewatch the movies, but then you had that premiere magazine kind of culture where, yeah, for the first time, yeah. I knew what movies were coming and the casting decisions. I remember Bonfire of the Vanities, which was oh, that a, was huge. That yeah, was that massive. was a movie. Yeah there was so much anticipation for who the three were going to be. And you were yeah, one of the yeah. stars. Me and, and then, Bruce and Melanie. Yeah. yeah. And then kind of people were ready to get mad if it wasn't good. And then with that one, that took, a, that movie took a lot of shit. Oh, you know, Oh my God did it. But we, you know, when we were doing it, Brian De Palma directed it. No, I always, I always said, look, Brian, this movie is either going to be gone with the wind that everybody loved or the fountainhead. That everybody hated. It's, <laughs> right. it's bi- this is going to be binary, man. Because the book itself, you know, uh, Tom, Tom, by the way, it came out just like, I want to say 50 years ago today or 40 years ago today yeah. or something. Uh, the book. Uh, the book itself, it, it's such a, it's, it's the story of the interior thoughts of everybody. And visually, it's about like styrofoam peanuts rattling around in the back of a car. And that stuff's hard to capture cinematically. And, uh, you know, it, the book was so huge. It had so many anticipations. I had people, before we even started making it, I had people stopping me on the street saying, you are not Sherman McCoy. 
<laughs> they felt an attachment to him. Yeah. I said, duly noted. Thank you very much. Uh, but that that's secondary to just the fact of how hard that is to do in the first place. You know, I, there is a there is a great, great clip of Clark Gable at the premiere of Gone with the Wind in yeah. Atlanta in 1939, in which they said, well, you know, it's all that old fashioned. Well, Mr. Gable, I'm sure that everybody here is greatly looking forward to your your role as Rhett Butler. Do you have any? Do you have any expectations of how you're feeling right now? And Clark gave it. Well, as everyone knows, those who have read the book have a very specific sense of who Brett Butler is. My hope only is that, well, I live up to what that sense is. And if I do not, well, that's just tough luck. He says something like <laughs> right. that. And that is the case with any movie that you're making from a much beloved novel. So that, that the lesson there is this too shall pass. Just because it's a great novel doesn't mean that you have anything built into uh, what's going to be coming along with a motion picture. It's got to it's got to it's got to click on all cylinders. Otherwise, it just don't. Well, you think like that movie is a big swing. Big is a big swing. Big is a movie that probably shouldn't work like fundamentally. And yet it is one of the most beloved movies of its kind of the last 35 years. It lives on. People pass it to their kids. Oh, I remember yeah. the first time my kids were old enough to watch that, immediately put that on. And it's just going to go on for the next 200 years. There's also a world in which that movie's a disaster and it goes away and nobody ever thinks of it again <laughs> well, in a month, right? We were, okay, the, the way things are so cyclical, we were the last of four movies that were essentially dealing with the same gimmick. The body switch I, gimmick, yeah. The body, the body switch gimmick of an old guy into a young guy's body, or vice versa. I could, I think, I think that was the name of one of the movies, vice yeah. versa. Um, and we <laughs> were Judge Reinhold. You're right. Oh, was that right? Okay. Yeah. And then, and we came out last. You know, we were the last of the four to come out, and um, uh, I, it was just inexplicably fabulous. But look, yeah, I got to give. I, this was all Penny. I mean, yeah. Penny, it was Jim Brooks and Penny Marshall. Here's here's a, I, this is my understanding of the backstory was that uh, Whoopi Goldberg was making a movie called Jumpin' Jack Flash, and for two and for two weeks, um, it wasn't going well. And uh, Jim Brooks said, called up Penny Marshall, said, "You are going to you are a director of motion pictures, and you are going to come in and direct this movie on Monday." up in Jack Flash. So they fired one day. And if you do that, I will give you, you will direct uh, you, your next movie. And we'll yeah. figure out what that is later on. So it was all her. And uh, she directed uh, and cast. Everything that she did was um, slow to the point of maddening, methodical. The, why is this taking so long? And, um, oh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this one story. Both Penny and Bob Greenhut, who was the, uh, was the producer, uh, the line producer. So we were in New York uh, and we were shooting the movie. And look, at, on, on some ways, I have an instinct of what I wanted to do. But in other times, I'm desperate for anybody to help, you know, right. the costume, Penny. How do you want this? What should we do? I think I'd do this, but is that going to be enough? And Penny shot a lot of takes and I tried this and tried that and la, la, la. So we had shot a version of... Uh, the Zoltar machine at Rye Playland. We shot a version of it where 
I wish I was big or no, actually the final thing uh, where I go back to him and try to get turned back into a kid. We shot one version of it and it didn't work. So we, we ended up putting in the schedule to shoot another version of it, which we did. And then Penny decided they actually needed even more of what it was. And that didn't quite work. So they came back, <laughs> Bob Green, we're actually shooting the scene in a bank in Manhattan where I cash my check for the first time and get cash uh, with uh, young uh, Billy Rushton. And uh, Bob Greenhut came up and said, hey, did you hear we're going to go back and shoot some more at the, in Rye at the Zoltar machine? And I said, why? <laughs> I mean, geez, we, we've had three passes at it. Penny! Penny, are we actually going back and shooting some more at the, at the Zoltar thing? Yeah, yeah, we need, we need to try something. I said, look, guys, guys, we're wasting time. I gotta, I gotta, we got to do hold the whole Michigas, and I'm going to have to get back in the emotive state, and we're going to have to do it again. Can't we just, can't we just, you know, table it? Let's, let, let's, let's cut them, let's finish the movie, cut it together, and then figure out what the scene should be after that. He said, well, I mean, Penny has it. I want to try this. Well, we're going to keep trying stuff, and it's never going to work. We're never going to find out. I mean, why in the world are we going back to shoot this a fourth time? And Bob Greenhut said, because they're letting us. I said, oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Actually, I understand that. Okay. All right. We did that. And that's one of those lessons that you learn. It's like never turn down a chance to do it again. Never, right. never not take another swing at that thing. Always come back and say, oh, we're going to go back and do some more. Great. Let's try this. Or you want another take, Tom? Sure. Let's do it. Well, just shoot until we lose the light. I'll go on as many times as you want. That's what I do now. Didn't, wasn't quite aware of the richness and the luxury of that opportunity then. Because, uh, you know, you're full of yourself and you think that nothing's more important than making the day. I think you undersold your performance in that movie. Well, I think that was that. an incredibly, incredibly hard movie to pull off. You're playing well, that, somebody who's 13 year old internally, but is built like a 30 year old. And you have to have kind of that kind of clumsiness that somebody has yeah, when they're 12, yeah. 13. Like there's some real thought put into that. There would no, there was, I, I, I the, the, it's hard to know. I, I don't know how to explain what the process is. Cause I mean, how, how'd you come up with that moment? I don't know, man. You just throw yourself into a maelstrom of, of, of self-doubt, self-loathing, and some degree of instinct that takes you where you're going to go when you try it. The thing is, I, I this was a while back, and I had made, I had done Punchline with Sally Field and David yeah. Seltzer before we made Big, and then we made Big afterward, but they, they were released in the opposite way. So I had just gone through this um, uh, grown-up, uh, bitter, really screwed-up, comedian that just needed more of everything for his own ego and salvation and uh, existence. And um, we, you know, kind of like got beaten up in the whole process of trying to come up with an act and all of, and, and, and working with Sally as well, who was, uh, who was a gem and at the same time was doing this ephemeral thing that I didn't quite recognize as yeah. uh, performing in a, performing an emotion picture. Yeah. Um, and I, I was like, oh, oh, man, I this I can't even see what she's doing here. And I'm as loud as loud can be. So going from that and then working with Penny, I, it was it ended up being kind of like a, I learned how to be more interior, I guess, in that and keep a hell of a lot more stuff in my pocket as opposed to uh, 
scream at it at the top of my lungs. It's such an innocent movie for a way more innocent time. I always think like if Big came out in 2021, there would be think pieces about, is it okay that Elizabeth Perkins' character still liked him once she found out she was 13? You'd, you'd head down all these rabbit holes. I'm like, no, no, can I just enjoy this movie? Can I just enjoy the concept of a 13-year-old organically falling in love as an adult with somebody for a little while? Well, it's like you take all of these movies and ponder, what is anybody going to start texting in the first 15 minutes of any one of these movies? You know? Oh, yeah. What are they, they, they going to be sending their friends? What, what, are, what are their comments going to be on? Which is an unfair, I think, comparison to make between now and then because th- it was not it wasn't in our imaginations of being able to do so. And now yeah, you're not thinking of worst case scenarios in no. 1988. You're just trying to no, make a movie. You're actually willing to sit there. You have no, you have nothing else to do except get your money's worth from a movie like that. And I, now I think my Lord, I, I wouldn't be surprised if movies come back and have to take into account the TikTok effect, which would be when you mm. go sit in a movie and it's two thirds full, how soon do you see out of the corner of your eye some patron pull out their phone and start looking at TikTok videos because they oh, don't five care minutes for what in movie. exactly, yeah. and then how many of them are, and yeah, how many how many do you really see, and how, how long do they go in the course of what the movie is? Because you know that's where our attention span is. Well, then you peaked as an actor the following year, but, but doing entire <laughs> scenes with the Saint Bernard. And pulling it off. Some of the oh, best work of your career. Oh Turner and Hooch. If and, I then, was gonna, and then they I'm, killed the dog. You killed the dog t- at the I'm end of it. T- the hardest work I have ever. I mean, I was glad I was a young man because I couldn't work that hard now. We had, uh, they were actually called dog de Bordeaux. They were these huge French versions of Mastiffs. <laughs> right. But the dogs were just sweethearts. But the problem is, unless you have a real tactile connection to that dog there is going to be nothing on that screen it's going to just be a a dog looking at their their trainer off camera waiting for waiting for their one quarter of a of a hot dog to be you know given to them that both of those dogs barry and beasley were their names i wrestled with them i exchanged (laughs) spit with them I scratched them all over the place. I would grab their skin and their heads. There's a couple of shots in there um, in, in, in the movie in which truly it's me and a dog playing. And the dog, I think, was actually thinking, hey, this guy's okay. Yeah, the other I just worked with a dog in, this, in the other movie that's coming out. And it was the same exact thing. Uh, you have to get into that place where you can see it in their eyes, their big brown eyes, where they look at you and they say, hey, you're all right. <laughs> it's, I'm going to actually look at you. It's not much different than if you're doing a rom-com and you have to click with like Meg Ryan. At some point, oh, you have to be well, pre- No, you have to be present yeah. in the moment with who your star is, dog there, or there female. Is a, there, is a, there is a connection that goes on between really good, solid professional actors. That is, I think, where you just pick up every day, right, where you, you left off. And yeah. um, the, the, the uh, uh, taking away, you know, taking away this, the concept of flirting, you know, that goes on, I mean, it, in, in the workplace, yeah. or any kind of like unresolved sexual tension and stuff, and just being pals and laughing. Uh, and getting through all that kind of stuff, that ends up being one of the the, the better joys because I the 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 women actors that I've worked with, yeah, actresses is not really the starlets yeah. is not the word used. The 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 women actors, you know, definitely Meg, 
um, definitely um, Julia Roberts, um, Helen Hunt. When when you get to that place where you're sort of always talking about the acting, but you're actually you're actually just trying to recreate the kind of behavior and being in the scenes. Yeah, that really is a high country. Meryl, uh, I'll drop that bomb working with uh, Meryl Streep in the post. That was a that was a thing where I was like, oh, this is this is so luxurious because we're just behaving. We're not performing. We're not you know, we're not posing. We're not trying to put curly cues on all of our lines. We're not being sandbagged back and forth. We're actually engaged like uh, like when you're playing a great card game and all you're doing is laughing. And at the same time, you're trying to win. So I, I look, I made three movies with Meg and every one of them was completely different from the other. And they were all, <laughs> they were all, it was all, it was kind of tough because all you do is laugh, you know, the, yeah. you, you get to the point where every day is just that kind of like this kook fest and you kind of like turn and say, do we have it? Did we say the words the way you wanted them to be said or were we just goofing around for that whole thing? Can you tell when younger actors have it? Like you worked with Damon at a really young point in his career, Save Private Ryan. You worked with Leo when he wasn't well, fully formed Leo yet. I mean, he was I'd on his way. He, but. I'd say he was Leo, yeah. Uh, you get it from absolutely everybody. You know, it's uh, you can tell someone uh, you, the... The sensibility. Well, I will say this. I didn't know for the longest time. I, I, I did not know. I don't know what movie it was that I did where I figured out there was something more important than showing up on time and, and uh, knowing the lines. Yeah. At some at some point, you have to show up on time and know the lines and have an idea that is unique to yourself that you either talk about or demonstrate. And it, it has to be inclusive. It can't it has to be additive to the process meaning that you can't show up and say, you know, I think I'll jump out the window in this scene. You can't jump out the window in this scene because you're not in the rest of the scene and they can't replace the window fast enough. So um, when you're all those, I, I, I don't think I've ever worked with someone that didn't come in and bring something new that was uh, that you're able to to play off of sometime in an, in an intimidating fashion in which it's like, oh, wait, this is a pitcher's duel. I mean, when I did Philadelphia with Denzel, you can't you can't ask for an actor who is at uh, farther atop his game than Denzel was and and still is. And what comes along with that is like, I'm going, hey, dude, I'm throwing heat. I'm not telling you I'm throwing heat. I'm throwing heat. <laughs> All right. Right. So, so you're going to catch it. And then what are you going to come back at me with? Oh, you're throwing heat, too. All right. Well, I'm going to go off speed on you now, bad boy. What do you think of that? Oh. You got a piece of that. Okay. Hey, 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 that was a chin. It's like that. And that is the additive process of uh, sometimes it's mano a mano. And sometimes it's laying down the red dot that the scene is all about. And when you're working with someone who doesn't take into account either one of those things, you know, it's a problem. And I don't, I can't, I couldn't come up with the name of someone who did that, that didn't last. But uh, when, uh, when you after at the end of the day, if you just you know think of, you know uh, that wasn't that good a game, man. You know that's I'm I'm not sure I'd pick him for the top five anymore. Or it's, it's right. and there's there's just no denying it. You you can't get away from it. Did you know your career was going to pivot the way it did in the '90s, or did Hell was it one no. of those things like a film by film? It's like, oh, you're offering me that. Oh, I get no, to do that. And I had done going. that. I'll tell you, Bill Simmons, I had done that for the first uh, ten years of being in the movies. If they asked me, 
I looked at and said, I can make this work. Oh, this is let watch me go. Um, and then it wasn't until um, I can't, I can't. Well, you had League of Their Own. You had Philadelphia, Sleepless in Seattle, kind of in all the same area. That's right. Whatever I had done before League of Their Own, I had had a meeting. Uh, You got Bonfire the Vanities? Okay, there was that in there. That was there. And then I I don't want it to sound like, oh, I made a a movie that nobody liked. And so therefore, it was actually a zeitgeist. Oh, Joe versus the Volcano? Okay, I made Joe versus the Volcano. And there was some really great stuff in that. But at the end of the day, I had to look at what my part of of all those movies were, what I brought to them, you know, other than showing up on time and knowing my lines. But what what an additive quality that I bring to them. And uh, uh, I came away understanding that I was now 35. I was mm. in my mid-30s. I had um I had three kids, um, had been through enough of uh, getting my ass kicked <clears throat> when I thought everything was gonna be groovy and finding out everything was groovy when, in fact, I, I thought I had failed miserable. And I said, okay. I sat down with my, my crack team of show business experts and said, uh, <laughs> now, I, I, the, my, my, my kids hate it when I use this word because I don't mean it in the way, in a pejorative fashion. I mean it in a way of what I'm looking for. It, I'm, I mean it in a way of a level of maturity and a level of life experience and a level of expectation. I told my agent, I don't want to play pussies anymore. And by that, <laughs> I mean guys who whine, guys who say boo-hoo-hoo, I need something more in my life. Who am I going to be? What am I going to do with my life? Oh, I'm in a circumstance that I that I need to extricate myself. So I'll only use that word once because it's got different sort of connotations now that I'd rather be able to define myself. But so I said, I'm not I am now, it's now time to play adults who go through bitter compromise. Mm. And the first movie that came out of that was League of Their Own, um, which had actually um, had been around and then disappeared and then came back around. And uh, when I met with Penny about it, it it was our second movie together. Penny said, uh, you got to get fat. (laughs) So what? So you, you, Look, you're too young. You know, you got to this is for an old broken down guy. You can't be good looking. You can't yeah. be charming around. These ladies can't fall in love with you. And those are the movies that you make. So you can't. And I said, well, if I let's let's let me let me put on some weight and then let me also play this bitter moment of compromise. I blew my knee out in a stupid way. I would have been Jimmy Fox. I would have been Lou mm. Gehrig. I would have been Stan Musial. But in, I was jumping out of some girl's hotel room. I landed on my knee. And just like Mickey Mantle hitting that uh, water sprinkler out in, uh, <clears throat> out in uh, right field in Yankee Stadium, I didn't take care of myself. And so here I am. And he said, and he said, all right, that could work. Well, you're going to walk with a limp? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'll walk with a limp. Okay, maybe it came. You know, so that 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 got us. There. That was it. Yeah. So you went. The characters became complicated, and that unlocked you. Hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you because you can't you know you can't play a young guy. I'm mean, look. I'm 65 now. Everybody yeah. knows. You know how long you've been watching me. You know. Yeah. The character you haven't done yet, and you've done just about everybody. But I know you love the movie Boogie Nights. 
You, oh my lord, yeah. You haven't had the Jack Horner kind of supporting role where you just go off the path for a role, but it still feels like you, but part of the thrill is, oh wow, he's playing this guy? Uh, well, I don't Have you I done that yet? I don't know how how big the advance is on talking about movies in the future, but um with Ooh. Austin with the great Austin Butler as mm. Elvis Presley written and directed by Baz Luhrmann. Uh, I play ter- Colonel Tom Parker. What? Um, when is that? Yeah. Uh, that'll be out uh, June, uh, hopefully June of 2022. Oh, so there next, you go. That could be your next, Jack Horner movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, wow. It, that, was, that, was, that was a wild ride. Yeah. And um, if anybody, it, Colonel Tom Parker is uh, was Elvis's promoter, not his yes. manager, not his manager. Don't call him a manager. He was... He was Elvis Presley's promoter, and I, 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 I would, I would put him into the realm of a guy of great charm but questionable morals, and sometimes not great charm either. Sometimes uh, quite a lot of boorishness. That's perfect. I like that one. All right, quick questions before we go. Is there to keep too long? Um, Sleepless in Seattle. Does how long do they actually stay together after they get off the Empire State Building? Do you think they're they're together for life, or is that like? Six months, uh, and no, it that's, falls apart. No, no, I think I think that's for the long haul because they ain't kids. You know, they've been around. I so mean, you think that's uh, it? This weird I, lady that meets him at the tower. He's like, this is this is the stepmother for my child. I'm, I'm uh, this is the one. And I'll tell you why because that guy knows how to be married. He knows, you know, he knows how the bumps on the road. He needs to. He knows how to. I'm not going to sweat that detail. He knows how to say whatever you want or said, no, I'm not going, but you have a good time. He knows how to do that now. So no, okay. that, that's the, that's the long haul. Um, Forrest Gump, the running scene, which one? It's like eight minutes. He's running back and forth across the country. Oh, for across three the country. Years. Oh my He's gosh. Back and forth. Yes. It goes on forever. We flew to, we flew to all those places. <laughs> and my brother, Jim went the farthest to get dressed up like me and, and oh, he was your running down. stunt double, right? Yeah, in a couple of shots. And we still have arguments. I said, that was me. I know that was me. Nobody. That's me. I remember doing that. So shot. Forrest no, is just, he's, he's just going back and forth. Like who's paying the bills? Where's he going to the bathroom? Is he staying that in was, hotels? What's going on was, there? That was one of those things where, um, <laughs> I, I, I think Bob, I think I actually raised my voice to Bob because I couldn't, I couldn't fathom the logic of it. And we ended up, we ended up adding a line to the voiceover that said, you know, when I was tired, I slept. And when I yeah. was hungry, I ate. And when I had to, you know, well, then I went, you know, <laughs> because I couldn't take this idea of just a guy running across the country doing nothing and just never taking off a piece of clothes. So if you look, Joanna Johnson had done this thing where I never took off anything I put on. And Bob thought it was, I just think it's funny. I think it's hilarious. You know, he put something. I said, Bob, that's contrary to human behavior. I can see him getting something and wearing it out and then getting something new, but he's yeah. not going to show up at the end of this thing. But yeah, we, uh, I tell you, there was one time we were shooting the movie and I worked because we would fly off to one of those locations first thing Saturday morning, shoot Saturday and Sunday, and then fly back and then be back on the set in South Carolina on Monday morning, there was one period of time where we, we, I shot 27 days straight. Um, cause we were either shooting the movie Jesus. or we were shooting in Maine or North Carolina or, uh, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire. We, we just, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Monument Valley. We, we ended up, and that was Bob. That was, 
that was Bob said, now we got to get these shots, man. That movie's done a nice, it comes out, it makes an incredible amount of money. It does really well with the awards. Then people get mad because it was the Pulp Fiction Shawshank year. And they're like, no, maybe this should And now it's like circled back around where it's like, you know, it's a really good movie for us. <laughs> like it, it's landed in the right spot all these years later. We were diabolical geniuses because it was too, too successful. You yeah. Know? If, people got we, mad. They're like, fuck this. If, if we had done half the business and then, you know, split it up, you know, between, uh, you know, Pulp and Shawshank, that's true. Those were those were kind of like three granddaddy, big swing, mega, mega perfect films. Yeah. Uh, but they were all so friggin different one from the next. And you had to pick one that was the, the that was the vanilla. And, and because because we had because it played all year long. for crying Oh, my out God. Long. What a year that and, was. Um, and, and beat the living daylights out of me. Castaway. So he goes to he goes to Helen Hunt's house. Mm-hmm. She's even married. though he marries the dentist a little fast, in my opinion. I don't know if there was enough grieving on the Helen well, Hunt side. I just immediately next well, guy know, I asked her out. They get dude, married. They have a kid. Dude, no, we talked about it. We talked about this whole thing. Hel- Helen's no pushover, you know. So we're thinking like, okay, he he goes away. The word comes in the next day that the plane has gone down, and yeah. they. And so there's a there's a two there's a two week search and rescue. They don't find him because they have no idea where it is. And she's already going on dates at that point. She's oh, like, oh, they're no, probably not no, finding no. him. Oh, the dentist her, asked me out. No, give her a year. <laughs> give her a give her a full year. She had a kid, two year old kid. She was just you know, moving on. I'll but, tell you. I'll tell you. Here's a, here's a moment in that we were trying to figure out a, a line, a line. We we did not have it. We had to figure out a line that. I said, or she said, and we both realized that that is the measure of how much time had passed and yeah. how angry Chuck was that she married somebody else. Yeah, he should have been. And the line, the line was this, after I've seen pictures of her family on the refrigerator and we see all this stuff and I, 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 we, we wrote on the set and Bob was there. And I said, uh, we came up with a line, let me get this straight. And it's like, bump, bump, bump. <laughs> right. The next line could be, you, you shack up with your orthodontist and the next thing you know, <laughs> you're, you're married to him. Hey, thanks, babe. Yeah. That could have been the next line, but instead the line ended up being. It was the, t- it was the football team, right? We, we have a football <laughs> team now because the Houston Oilers. Had moved and they to almost Nashville. won the Super Bowl. Yeah, they, ah, that was it, and ended up that was just being a, one of those kind of like locks that got uh, that got opened, uh, and poof, oh, on okay. the on the day we came up with that. So Chuck Chuck saved. He comes home, yeah, big hullabaloo. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure it's like cover of People magazine. He's Lazarus, the rounds. Lazarus laugh. Whole thing. Yes. The the husband, the dentist, who stole away Helen Hunt, mm-hmm. who's grieving. Now he's home. Yeah. Chuck's, been, Chuck's been there 24 hours, drives yeah. to the house in the middle of the night, and the husband sleeps through all of it. Ooh, no, There's, I don't think Chuck's he's sleeping. Not Chuck's not I on don't. the radar at all. You think he's lying yeah. in bed going like, I hope my wife handles this moment correctly? I believe she, he's, I believe, that was by Chris North, and I believe he's up there, in, uh, up there in bed wondering how long it's going to be till he hears his wife come up the stairs and slide into the sheets. She runs out of the him. rain at one point, screams, Chuck! Yeah, yeah. Runs out, yeah. big makeout session in the but, driveway, and then Chuck sends her packing. She just goes back to bed? 
Well, she goes back to bed and has a very long discussion, you know, and I think there's probably going to be a little frostiness in the house for a that marriage for the next is not couple lasting. of days. They're, they're getting divorced two, two months no, later. No, don't. Oh, you're a cynic. You're a cynic. They work <laughs> it out, man, because even because even even the husband knows. Uh, I got to say, I was not expecting that guy to come back. Yeah, so, I was honey, second choice. Honey, you're going to have to go through something. And by the way, in three months, you and I will be in couples therapy. We'll be we'll be getting some counseling in order to work this out. That's Castaway too. They're in couple <laughs> therapy, and Chuck uh, is Chuck is still bringing a volleyball around, and yeah, people yeah, are wondering that, what's going that, on with that. Them. No, everybody says, "Where's Wilson? Where's Wilson?" He he floated away. Did you not yeah, see the movie? It's, done. it's yeah. like you know that rosebud sled got burned in the bonfire at uh, at the end of Citizen Kane. He's gone, baby, gone. I think Chuck has a lot of issues over the next couple of years, but eventually is fine. Maybe oh, Bettina dear. helps him. Maybe yeah. living yeah, in the but, ranch, oh, maybe that helps him. Well, you know, that started off because when we were, one of the very early in the first years that we were working on it, uh, Bill said, you know, look, what, what do you, how do you think this movie really begins? And I said, I'll tell you how it begins. It begins with me and I'm in a tree somewhere in this beautiful farm somewhere. And I got little kids playing at my feet, I got a big glass of iced tea and I have a beautiful wife that is coming out saying, it's almost time for lunch, honey. And I look around, I say, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was being in a plane crash and being stuck on an island for four years because otherwise oh, wow. I, 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 I wouldn't be here. That's that's the theme with which we started writing on and you just continue on. And I, I, I think there's You kept no it more small- of a mystery with the final product, with the packages. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Cinema, man. Cinema. Cinema. You did it. Tell me about Finch. This came about because uh, a while back ago, I mean, this is, we made it in 2000, I want to say 18. Yeah. Uh, The fall, the fall of 18, going into 19. I'll have to check my notes. Um, This, look, I am, I am, I am a competitive son of a bitch who wants to have the best role in the movie of anything that I read. And I read this thing about the last man on earth who is not just trying to survive, not just trying to eat, not just trying to escape the bad guys and take a shower. His whole reason for living is to build uh, a companion that will take care of his dog. (laughs) I told people about this. What is this movie you're doing? Uh, It's a a dystopian thing. Well, yeah, it's that, you know, and there's a robot and blah, blah, blah. But it's really about a guy who wants to make sure his dog is safe and go lives, lives, goes on beyond him. And everybody goes, oh, oh, people love dogs. Yeah. It's uh, and uh, again, you you killed Hooch. So you had to do something. Well, yeah, we we learned that lesson. Yeah, not do not kill even if you have a puppy later on do not do not kill the hero dog my so, wife is still furious like a million years later uh, just can't believe Hooch didn't make it just maybe just had a cast no well he's dead. i remember fighting for the fight for the death of Hooch saying in the grand disney tradition of old yeller Hooch must die <laughs> uh not not the smartest word <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the great uh, Miguel Sapochnik directed Finch and Miguel yeah. is the granddaddy of Game of Thrones. He directed uh, the, the the meat and potatoes of Game of Thrones, which yeah. actually when I actually saw some of them, we the, the last three were airing at the time we were working. We had all gathered at Miguel's house in Albuquerque, watch them. And then as soon as they were done, I would I'd find him. So Miguel, 
how did you make these things? They, these are the most complex, multi-layered, uh, and he would describe a brutal shooting schedule and all this other stuff that goes on. So in the relative scheme of things, me, Caleb Landry Jones as the as the Jeff the robot and uh, and uh, our uh, the dog um, whose name I'll scream out here in a second. I'm having a cranial cranial plate shift. Um, <clears throat> I'm remembering Hooch, uh, not the. Uh, I anyhow. screwed you up. I kept bringing uh, up Hooch. That's yeah, all dog. right. That's all right. The three of us were relative uh, relative uh, stroll in the park. But there, it's one of those movies that for me is like, this is all about procedure and behavior, man. Yeah. There are things, there are things that have to be, and we cannot, we cannot shortchange them. And it, and, uh, uh, it was also uh, co-written by um, uh, one of the, one of the former art directors who worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey with, uh, wow. uh, uh, with uh, Stanley Kubrick. So I was, I was, oh, I was all over, I was all over him about all of that. And it was, uh, uh, uh it was a movie that beat the living daylights out of us all. Well, it comes out. It was a hard movie, hard movie to make. Comes, comes out, out this out weekend on, on Apple. On streaming only on Apple. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what, what that means to the zeitgeist. Well, I intentionally left a lot of Tom Hanks movies left for that we didn't discuss for when, whenever you come back. Because you're always invited back whenever you want. Oh, we, well, we hey, have to go through. We have to go through the 90s. Well, you know, the 2000s. It doesn't, doesn't always doesn't have to always be. This is your life, man. You know, no, it's but like, I, uh, I had a lot of movie questions. Yeah. So you've been in my life for forty plus years. I had to, I had to get well, some questions you know, answered. You know, I have to. I have to admit, I I, I kind of get that. I really like that. Um, there's it. There's there's people like you know like uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo and these guys that have been around for an awfully long time. It's like. I love hearing, I love it when they go back and just say, oh, you know, we, uh, I read this thing that Paul McCartney said, uh, he was asked, um, did you guys in, did you guys know you were getting better when you were in Hamburg, you know, playing on the Reaper right. Bond? Did you know? And it's like, but that's actually a pretty interesting question. Did they know they were getting better? They said, well, we were always trying, you know, we never played the same songs. You know, there were other bands who would come in and just bang out the set and that was it. We were always throwing new stuff in, never doing it in the same order. And there was a, there was a club down the Reeperbahn that had a jukebox. And when we would close up, we'd run down, you know, to the jukebox and hear what was the latest. And, you know, we'd hear, we'd hear uh, Elvis singing, it's now or never, come hold me tight. And we'd, we'd play it four times and write down the lyrics and figure out, figure out the chords. And then we'd play that the next night, you know, at the club. And it's, uh, you hear that, it's like, wow. That that kind of like tells the story of everything they've done since, you know. I love hearing that stuff. So it's 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 uh, it's good in order to go back and and ponder it. Although at, um, sometimes it's like, ah, geez, I, I I might remember a little too much of that stuff, and still have problems no, remembering the, where the, what my kid where my kids are now. <laughs> I'm like that with sports. I can remember every. Thing that's happened to any Boston team, and yet I'll get Why, like my oh, kids' you birthdays. From, I'm originally from Boston? from Boston. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Let me let me tell you my one. This is this is the baseball story that I. Okay, tell. let's hear it. All right. I'm doing nothing in common in Chicago with Jackie Gleason, Eva Marie Saint, uh, Bess Armstrong, Celia Wood. I've never been to Chicago before, so this is this is kind of a great thing. I get tickets to Wrigley Field. Still no lights. 
day games only at Wrigley Field. They actually were had they had the campaign no lights. You know, everybody yep. had signs, no lights, don't destroy Wrigley Field, no lights. Sunday game <clears throat> against the Cincinnati Reds. As Pete Rose is coming closer and closer and closer to Ty Cobb's record. Right. Right. All right. Long game. Guess what? With another hit, he will tie Ty Cobb's record. With just one more hit, we will be there for the historical moment when Pete Rose and Ty Cobb are at the same place on the all-time hit. A rainstorm comes up, as it only can in uh, Chicago, and it is though the ghost of Ty Cobb is saying, no, not today, Al. <laughs> not today. It rained, Bill, it rained for close to two hours. The tarp was out. Most of the people left, but those that didn't, I had nothing to do on a Sunday, so I wasn't about to go back to the hotel. And I, was with, I'm a, I was with a buddy of mine, so we stayed and drank beer and talked to people and blah, blah, blah. All right, two hours go by. Looks like the rain has stopped. Lo and behold, it has. Oh, it looks like the looks like they're coming out to take the tarp off the infield. Holy cow, they are. They're going to keep playing. Roll it up, roll it up, roll it up. Da, 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 da. It's getting dark. There are no lights. Oh, holy cow. Who is on deck? Pete, Pete Rose. Rose. Pete Rose is on deck and in the top of whatever inning it was. Cubs play out there bottom, and here it comes. First batter goes up, and as he's taking swings, the umpire calls the game on account of darkness. Ah. And Pete Rose is there with the donut, you know, the weighted donut on his back, and I could read his lips, and he was saying, I can see. I can see. Wow. <laughs> it's not that dark. And then whenever the next game was back in Cincinnati is when he tied the record and broke the record. Jesus. How about that? That's, that's baseball, man. That's a good baseball. Sport. And you had to sit through the whole rain delay, man. Oh, what, what better, what better thing to do? Nothing I guess I'm Wrigley. Perfect. Um, yeah. all right, Tom Hanks, good luck with the movie. Thanks for coming on. It was great. To, thanks very uh, much. Great to meet you and do this. Hope to do it again at some point. Good later. to talk to you. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks. Peace and love. All right. Thanks to Tom Hanks. This podcast was produced by Kyle Creighton. Good luck to Willow's football eighth grade tomorrow, and I will see you on Sunday night.